Um, just was looking for a long time for a good online kind of simple training program that my daughter could do on her own. So um, we came across Anytime Soccer and just felt like the layout was really good and, and simple and the trainings are really good, especially the ones you can do right in the living room. And so I had actually gotten my daughter to do the 30-day challenge. I think we just did the ball mastery one. And um, just within that 30 days uh, afterwards, so for this whole season, less starting in September, October, uh, every game, someone would come up and say how much better Grace's footwork has gotten. And I was just like, well, she just did this 30-day thing with Anytime Soccer. So I've been telling people a lot about it. But it was just amazing to me to just see, like, man, 10 minutes a day. What 10 minutes a day could do. And Hey guys, this is Neil Crawford with Anytime Soccer Training and also the host of the Inside Scoop. I just had a wonderful conversation with David Mayer, who played extensive uh, academy level football in the UK, but he has a very interesting, interesting perspective because he played in, at a high level in the UK, Wigan Athletic, Blackburn Youth Academy, that kind of stuff. Then he came and traveled all the way across the pond here and played at a high level here in the States. I think you played college, college soccer here, right? I did, Neil. That's correct. Yeah. And you coach. And when I get guys like this, I always want to ask them, you know, you've seen both sides of the pond. And so you have mm -hmm. a unique perspective that many of our parents are very interested in, in learning about. So before we wrap this up, having played youth at a, at a high level in the UK and having then played at a high level in the U.S., and having coached in the U.S. in Utah youth soccer, what are some of your initial takeaways? If you're not going to put you on the spot here, yeah, if yeah. you just had to sum it up as best you could to help someone understand those differences, what are some of the things, even almost from a visual and visceral perspective, did, did you notice that were different from your experience in the UK coming over here in the U.S.? And you may also say some things were the same. I, I don't have a view on it. Mm -hmm. No, it's a great question. Um, so I was very fortunate when when I first came over, I went to the University of Akron, who just won a national championship. So the group of players in terms of technical ability were very, very high. Um, some of my teammates and, and close friends now, uh, Will Trapp has captain the national team, the US national team, DeAndre Yedlin's played for the US national team. So I think there was five kids in that the team that have now represented the full national teams. So from a technical standpoint, the level was very, very high. Um, the college season is very different, however, because it's all crammed into three months. So as opposed to in England, you have a 10 month season um, similar to like they would in the MLS in college, you come in and it's three months and it's a very physical game. It's very demanding. I would say it's, it's a, not that it's a faster pace, it's just more aggressive. And you have to get results every single game. You could play three games in a week and you've just got to go back to back. So that was a big difference for me. Um, but like I said, I was very fortunate that when I came over, I was playing at a, at a high level in college. So technically some of the players that, that I was playing with were very, very good. And 
Um, I've there was players that I've played with at Wigan that have played now in the Premier League. Um, there are also players that I played with at Akron that have also played in the Premier League. So they were similar similarities, um, and like I said, the differences, especially in college, to to what it would be in England in the youth team and reserve team, was the 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 span of the season. So. Okay, so that's interesting. So, because I've heard this from a, um, a Spanish uh, director of football at a Spanish academy, that he effectively said the same thing because of American culture, better or worse, we spend a lot of time with our kids on individual training. So, the ones who make it to that level are pretty good technically. And his point was, but tactically, they didn't see the game as well as some of the Spanish kids. And he had to sort of integrate them in that way. Yeah. But I didn't think about just that when you're playing in a three month season, that also changes the entire game. That didn't changes that, that train changes a lot about how the coach is going to create the lineup. The, I, I would have guessed the physio, everything, because it's such a short truncated season. Mm-hmm. No, so, definitely. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. So, yeah. I, I would agree with that. And I think from a, from a tactical standpoint, um, so I, I played in Spain as well. I actually played in the third division in Spain. Um, and I, I would somewhat, I would agree with that to an extent. I do think that, look, in England growing up, people, all they do is they want to watch soccer. Kids grow up, they want to watch soccer, they'll play on the streets. And in the US, I don't know whether that's generally the case. There will be kids that will get up and watch early, etc. But... In terms of understanding the game, I don't know. It would be a gross generalization for me to say that they don't understand the game, but I don't think across the board it's it's at the same level as it would be in in countries in Europe where really it's the first sport, it's the main sport. Everybody wants to play soccer in, in pretty much everybody in England and it would be the same in Spain and other European countries too. So if I was at a crossroads where I had an opportunity to play, let's say at a championship or, or even premiership Academy or go to college and I'm 16, 17, 18, what is my life going to look like on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis in a professional Academy versus the college experience? And I want to get into the details. How long am I going to be on a pitch or in a training environment in a professional academy versus my experience having to manage school three month season, blah, 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 in a, in a division one program. Yeah. So in, in England, so up to 16, so up to, so, so basically from up under 16 is the last stage where you're based in the academy. Um, You'll probably practice three times a week up to that point, you're part-time. So you're still in high school. And then at 16 years of age, so going into as an under 17, uh, some players get selected to sign a full-time contract. So I signed a, a contract at Wigan to play for them from um, under, so under, so 16 to 18 years of age. We practiced pretty much a, 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 the, the general schedule. We would practice four times a week. Uh, we did do education, but it was very minimal. It was very general as well in terms of what it was that we studied. Um, because of that, I actually made my I made the decision to do education outside of soccer. So 
it, it's very much at that point as a as a youth team scholar or a young professional, it's the same or very similar as what it would be for first team players. So you'll practice four to five times a week. Um, you'll play one to two games depending on the schedule. If you play for the reserves, you'll play two. Um, but it is full time now. In college, it's interesting. In the three month season, if you if you've got two games a week, you'll still practice four times. If you've got three games a week, you you'll practice three times. It's it's less intense in terms of the practices because you've got to look after your body for games. But if you've got one game that week, you'll be getting after it and you'll be practicing pretty much every day. Um, and then in the off season, so that's the three month season in the off season. I think the limitations with the NCAA, with the rules that they make, which I'm not going to say that, look, I, I don't necessarily think that they're, they're hugely beneficial because they limit the playing time, they limit practice time that you have in the off season, which is a great, and that's the best opportunity for kids to improve is when they've not got to focus on games. They don't have to focus on results. Um, but in terms of practice times, I would say they're relatively similar. The only difference is you're a full-time student as well. So balancing yeah. school and soccer is, it's a, don't get me wrong. It's a challenge, um, uh -oh. but I think it's a great learning lesson. Well, college was hard enough, so I wouldn't want to add Division One soccer onto it. So, so in wrapping this up, and people who listen to the show know I like to really get into the details. I am seven, 18 years old, 17 years old. I signed a contract, professional contract with Wigan Athletic, but I'm not on the first team. Monday morning, I wake up. What time am I reporting to work? Uh, what time did I have to be in? I think it was nine. I had to be in at nine. So, so you got to be there at nine in the morning. Yeah, but I was, I only lived 10 minutes away. So for me, it was great. I'd roll out of bed, have a breakfast and I'd be. And then you go there. And then so when you say practice, so to the average person who like me, who doesn't know anything about it, I'm thinking about the hour and a half or two hours you're on the pitch. But what are you doing at nine o'clock in the morning until the time? When do you leave the facilities? So we would, we would get there at nine. Uh, we would have about an hour Generally, it was an hour to do any rehab, to do any any extra things that we needed to do. We would start practice at 10. We'd get done around 11, 30, 12. And then depending on the day, depending on the day, whether we had the, the schoolwork or not, we would have um, lunch and then practice again in the afternoon. Or we would have uh, we would have like the college per se that they, that they did, which I mentioned was very general. Or we wouldn't be off. So some some days you'd be done by twelve thirty one. Some days you'd be done by four thirty five, depending on on how it was. But it was in at nine every day. Um, you would always practice for at least at least an hour and a half to two hours, sometimes up to four or five. So if I had to use a general term, contact hours time that you are receiving soccer instructions to become a better soccer player mm -hmm. in a Monday through Friday or Monday, no Monday through Saturday, seven days. Are you getting a lot more contact hours in a professional Academy versus an NCAA student in the, in the heat of the season or not? Yes, you are maybe less games. You might play less games, but in terms of contact hours, for development, yes, you, you you are getting more hours. And then, so you're getting more hours and then you're getting more hours over a 10 month period. Yes. 
Yeah. But then if you're on a professional contract, is it, it's not, it's no longer 10 months anymore. Is it, is it going to be 12 months, right? It, it's 12 months. The, the contracts always run for 12 months. The season's 10 and then you have two months off. But I think in those two months, that's a, that's a personal decision that you will make. Am yeah. I going to take two months off or a month off? Or am I going to do whatever I can that when the, the off seat, the preseason rolls around, the new season comes around that I'm, in the best shape I can be. And I've done as much as I can to be at the level I need to be at. All right. So the last question, and we're going to wrap this up. So how stressful if you had to, and these are general questions. So, you know, take it for what yeah, it's yeah. worth. I'll poll a hundred kids on those contracts. They know they got two years. They know one, 2%, 3% are going to become what we see on TV. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, how in the world can you manage that kind of stress? Because it seems like you're going to constantly be looking over like, and then there's always going to be new crops of kids coming in that are better than the ones before. So how do you manage all that? Good question. I uh, just, just personally, as I'm not the kind of person that, that got stressed by it. I loved the challenge. I loved having to prove myself or to compete with other people. Um, the one thing I had personally, I had a lot of quite severe injuries. I had, I've had several surgeries, quite extensive surgeries, um, and actually retired at 25 because of hip surgery. So, um, from that standpoint, for me, that was the biggest issue that I had from a, a standpoint of stress or standpoint of having to compete with others. I think that's what makes people elite and what, what doesn't because, I know I've know people and you'll also hear of them that'll be in, in any sport that there's always the new kid that'll be coming up or there's always you've always got to get past the person that's in your spot and what are you willing to do to to get past that person what are you willing to do to make sure that the next one up doesn't take your position um, and if they do because it happens if they do take your spot what are you willing to do to get it back and I think that's that's the elite mentality that are you going to play in the Premier League or in the championship or, or are you going to stop playing completely at 18? Now, there are always other factors that will play a part in. So it could be injuries. It could be a little bit of timing. Um, there, could be, there could be factors like that that impact, um, impact those decisions. But you can still have that mentality that look, it's, it's me or you, it's my shirt. It, it, there's one shirt. It's either you or me that takes that shirt. And if I've not done enough to get that shirt and you take it, I don't think you can complain about it. Well, you can, but it doesn't hold much validation. Exactly. And I keep saying one last question that I promise this is the last question. I find this completely fascinating guys. You've been listening to Neil Crawford on the inside scoop with David Mayer and they like I said David has a very unique perspective so I'm just trying to tease out as much information as I can now Nate David and I talked to Jeff about this oh by the way we have a parent here listening by the name of Jeff part of the Facebook group and he's going to chime in as well and Jeff and I joked about this Jeff I grew up in, in David I grew up a American football American baseball basketball and baseball player and in these sports you see a kid 16 17 you know boom gone Everybody else, you know, the coach is like, you guys hit the showers. I'm going to work with this guy because in these sports, they're so physically dominant, right? So I saw, for example, you may not know this guy. I saw 
uh, Jerry Stackhouse, because I'm from North Carolina, so I saw him in high school. And if you saw Jerry Stackhouse in high school, he was literally a man amongst boys. He was so physically, more physically dominant. He's an NBA player. He's retired now. That all the little kids would get his autograph because they knew this guy is going to the NBA. Wow. Why am I saying that? So even when I sit down, we, I'm a Manchester United fan and we'll watch, you know, Rashford and Greenwood and my older son, who is 10 now, is starting to connect the dots. And he's like, I, I can't imagine how good these guys had to be at 16 years old to be playing in the premiership at that age. Yeah. So to someone who doesn't has not seen a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old premiership player up close in person, but has seen a lot of soccer and you, what am I going to see? Am I going to see, and this is a generalization, but am I, if I saw Mason Greenwood at 12 or 13 or 14, am I going to see a kid get the ball from the back against the highest of the highest kids and just dribble past everybody? Or am I going to see somebody who can think at another level, all the above? faster what am I gonna see yeah I, I think it's a case by case I've seen and I, I'll we'll use Man United because you're yeah. a Man United fan so Jesse Lingard as a Manchester United player in the academy I played against him um, he always played a year down and there's 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 I'm sure there's pictures online now that when he was playing he was tiny like absolutely tiny it looked like he was wearing a dress so you look at somebody like that. Now, his technical ability was phenomenal. His decision-making skills were so good. But he wasn't ready at 16, 17, 18 to play for Manchester United. He only really came through at 22, 23 years of age when he started making a bit of a name for himself. So at 12, could you say that you see something in them? Yes, I do think you can. Um, will you get players that are physically just far superior yes I, I think that's a factor as well you will see that but in terms of picking out somebody to say they're going to play for the first team is very challenging um, my my dad works at, at Liverpool's academy he's been there for the past five years and man some of the some of the players that he works with would they blow your mind and whether it be you've got the kid that at 10, 11 years of age, dribbles past everybody. And then you put him at centre-back to give him a different picture. Or whether you've got the kid that makes, it maybe not as athletic, but the decision-making is phenomenal. And you can't get near them, kind of like a Javi or Iniesta. And then you might have, you might just have the kid that's a straight line runner that's on train tracks, but is so athletic that they'll just find a way to make things happen. And, and there's no, I, I wouldn't say that there's a, a one size fits all with it. I think it's very case by case, but you can tell there's, there's players that I played with to give it, I don't want to go too long winded. There was a player I played with at, at Blackburn at, at 13 years of age. He was playing for the under 18s and was absolutely incredible. He never really, he, all the way through, he never really ended up playing above the under 18, uh, above that level. So he might he played for the reserves a few times, but he never really peaked beyond the under 18s. So all the way through up to 18 years of age and then got released 
And he just matured so early that he was far beyond his years, both physically. I mean, he had a, he had a mustache at 12. <laughs> so, so it, there are, it's case by case, but yeah, you will, you'll see players. If you go to watch an academy game in England, if you watch the top teams, you watch your Liverpools, your cities, your Uniteds, those academies, you'll see players and you'll go, wow, that kid can play. And you obviously hope for the best for them. You, you watch them and you go, you'd love to see in five or 10 years time that that kid's playing in the Premier League representing England. Um, not always the case. And I, I'll last little bit. So I played, we played in the FA Youth Cup when I was at Wigan, we played against Tottenham. Um, Tottenham at the time had seven players in the starting 11 that played in the UEFA Cup, which is now the Europa League. Um, one of them was Harry Kane. Now, Harry Kane wasn't the biggest name in that team. They had several players that Tottenham had bought from other clubs that were supposed to be the next big thing. Um, and I go back to that, the mentality aspect of it. Was Harry Kane the most athletic? No. Was he the most technical? No, he wasn't. Um, was he one of the brightest soccer players? I would probably say yes, he was. But his desire and will and want to to improve and just to score goals was evident to see. And he actually scored the goal that knocked us out. But in that team, there's so many of those players now that have that have played in the Premier League, that are still playing in the Premier League, that some of them you would have never even known. Only then you look at the team sheet a few years later and you go, wow, that's this kid's now playing at this team in the Premier League. See, that's interesting. And, and, and oh, by the way, with Inside Scoop, this show is not about what you got to do to manufacture a professional player. This show is about giving us dumb American parents some very uh, important insight from people who have been there, seen that, and also, and ideally, those who've seen both sides of, of the pond. So I appreciate that. And I promise this is the last question. Now, when we talk about technical ability, right, our, our, our parents, you know, um, I'm a parent. I call myself a parent trainer. I work actively with my boys. And it's a whole thing you have to do it to, and you can imagine this, to work with your children without driving them completely crazy. And even that's hard. So I spend a lot of time talking to parents about if you're going to go down that road, which I actually don't recommend most of, most of them do. We're not talking about team coaching. I'm talking about in the backyard with your kid then there's a lot of things you need to do to make sure you check yourself and don't ruin the experience for them. Why am I saying all this? One thing I can't picture is, um, I don't know why I can't picture this because basketball, it happens all the time, but I can't picture how a child becomes masterful on the ball without dad or mom out there saying, okay, you know, we're going to work on your weak foot. We're going to, we're going to make sure you juggle. We're going to do this outside of team training. Or, you know, you see in America, it's not as common in the UK. We're going to pay all these trainers to do this thing. I can't picture how these children become so masterful on the ball without that structure thing. So I want to ask you two questions. Culturally, are parents working with their kids more uh, than they were back even when you were coming up? And then sort of what is your view on that? Do you see kids becoming extremely technical without that parental influence. And I think, and oh, by the way, the gamut, it ranges, right? So yeah, yeah. I interviewed someone from, so there's no right answer, right? So I interviewed a guy that uh, worked in academies in France and he was like, Mbappe's dad was very active in working with him. 
then we know 99% of parents in a lot of these places don't. So there's no right answer. It's just more about what, what are you seeing and what is your perspective? Yeah, I would, I would, I, I've seen, again, I've seen both sides of it. I've seen um, one player in particular that, that I've watched recently um, that's playing in the academy system. He's a young boy, technically phenomenal, decision-making phenomenal. He's both feet left and right. And you think, oh, wow. And I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff because I, I go away and I, I, ask, I ask people questions. What makes, him, what makes people so good at what it is they do? Why? Um, that particular kid, his dad is very involved. Now, I think we have to be careful with that. When I say very involved, it doesn't mean that you're the pushy parent that screams and shouts at your kid when they're not doing exactly as they should be or they've not mastered it. Because truly, does anybody ever master something? Are you ever a master? Um, maybe at the top, top level. But even then, you could argue they're not, they've not mastered it because they're still working on things. Um, but... I have seen it where parents are around and they're very involved and they're there to help. I've also seen it where there's been kids that from a single parent family, the mum has no idea about the game, but the kid lives on the streets. And I, and I mean that in the most respectful way. I don't mean that the, the mum just disregards them. I mean that they'll come home from school and the first thing they do is they go outside. They'll go, they'll go and either do something by themselves or they'll go and play with their friends. And they'll live with the football on the streets. And I don't think there's a right and wrong. I think it very much is dependent on your environment. If you live in, a, in an affluent area, uh, there's a, there's, honestly, there's probably more of a chance that your parents will be more involved. Or there's, and there's less chance that you'll be on the streets because you'll be out in your nice backyard doing what you do. And that, that I've seen it in England. Um, I didn't grow up in a, I wouldn't say I grew up in a poor neighborhood, but it also wasn't an affluent neighborhood. But I had a backyard and I would go out on my own and we had a, I had a goaler and I'd do some shooting. Um, but my dad was, was heavily and still is very heavily involved in the game. So he would give me bits of advice and help that probably a lot of other people wouldn't have. Um, but I also did go out on the streets with my friends. Some, pe some kids are just out on the street and they'll be on the street playing with the friends six, seven, eight hours a day. And the, the, really fine tuning things just from the art, just from playing, just because the kids, that's, I think it's important that we remember that they're all still kids. Yeah. So David, and you, and you said it best and where I want these conversations to go and you did it best. You said it best. I like you am absolutely fascinated with how people develop and how people get really good at something. Yes, we're using youth soccer and we're talking about it in a youth soccer context, but these life lessons can be transferable to anything else. And I'm also personally interested because I do have two young boys on how parents who have been successful at striking the right balance, how they do it. And we try to have that conversation um, without passing the judgment and then giving sound advice on how not to overdo it. So David, I want to give a plug for your, for your book. And then we're going to end this segment of it. And then we're going to come back on to talk even more about your book and what you got, what you're doing now. So gold dust. Yes. Tell me about it. 
First of yeah. all, first of all, you actually wrote a book, man. I'm, I struggle to write a blog post. All right, but go ahead. So I don't know how you got. So at least you can say that degree helped you out, though. All right, so gold yeah. dust. Well, you may have wrote it before, but gold dust. What is the book about? And then, uh, yeah, tell us that, and then let's think about best ways to get a copy of it. Yeah. So the the book uh, got released on the 27th of November, 2019. So it's almost a year old now. Oh, okay. Um, it's been a number one bestseller in the UK for pretty much pretty much the 11 months since release. Uh, okay. The book, I, I co-authored it with my dad, who's he's, he's also my best friend. So we spent, it was just, I'm really lucky to spend so much time with him and learn so much from him growing up. And we put this, this book together. Um, so Goldust, How to Become a More Effective Coach Quickly in it in sports it's not just about soccer in sports in general and in life but when we relate it to sports people are so quick to talk about x's and o's and technique and tactics all this kind of stuff well really they're missing the most important aspect and it's the human aspect the the aspect of human connection and the relationships that you can build that in essence helps the athletes that you're working with so the books around based around the importance of connection the importance of relationship uh it's it's got some really cool stories in there from from experiences um it's very heavily weighted around language and how language neurologically can impact and affect the people that you work with um and and in the book i think i think it's important to mention that um, the book's dedicated to a, a guy called Dick Bate, who's one of the, he's probably the most, I don't know if famous is the word, but well-known and respected coach educators in any sport ever. Uh, my dad was a very close friend of Dick's and delivered with him a lot. Um, he sadly passed away in 2018. So we dedicated the book to him. Um, and 10% of the, the profits of the book actually go to the, the brain tumor fund that looked after him in his, in his last, last few days of life. So that, that we hold quite tightly. And we've also, with that, we've got 12 other people in the book that feature from a Premier League manager to a world champion athlete to elite youth coaches at top academies from Liverpool to Rangers, um, Aston Villa. We've got a a rugby coach who was the most successful coach in the history of the game in England. He's, he's now back in Australia. Um, and we, we really dug deep with them as well to find out what it is that made them so successful. And it's funny that it was very similar across all of them, that the person came before the athlete, the person came before the player and, and why it was so important. And, and for me, I, I live by it. I absolutely hold true to it. Um, that yes, as a, as a soccer coach and as a speaker and as a mentor, um, I'm really just using the game as a tool to help people. So I, I come across many people and I'm just fortunate that I'm able to use soccer to, to help them, really. So, man, I, I can't wait to get the book, number one. I love in, uh, in t I love using literacy to teach complex concepts to my son. So we read it and then we talk about it. One of the tips I had in one of my, my blog posts is um, 
have your kids read about 10 minutes on the way to practice. You just get hours and hours of reading. Why not? And so we're going to sit down. We're going to read it, some of it in the car on, on the journey. He'll read it. And then I'll, I'll use that to kind of have conversations with him. And it's just a way to have a conversation about the game, but not his game. Like, like it's great to talk about the game. Just don't talk about his game. Right. And so when, when you do that as a parent, you're able to uncover some of this stuff and get some life lessons. And it's just a fun way of doing it. So gold dust, and we're, we're going to do something special. We're going to do some kind of giveaway for the folks in the uh, Facebook group sponsored by Anytime Soccer Training, especially if it's uh, supporting um, such a wonderful cause. So listen, guys, you've been listening to the Inside Scoop. I'm Neil Croft. I'm your host, also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. We're going to wrap this portion up, and then we're going to bring David on again to talk a little bit about what he's doing now and sort of some of the things that he's seeing as it relates to youth soccer in the U.S., Salt Lake City, City specifically. Thanks again. Thanks for listening, guys. David, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you very much, Neil.